When I was a boy growing up in the church, I never heard a pastor preach sermons on the virgin birth. All of my pastors believed in the virgin birth of Christ, but I never heard a sermon on the virgin birth until finally I heard one that I will reference perhaps as I move on by Dr. James M. Baird at First Presbyterian Church in Macon as the Lord was leading me to understand the Reformed faith. I determined that it would be very important, actually, if not every year, frequently, to preach sermons on the virgin birth of Christ. So I ask that you will please turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and we will begin reading at verse 18. Remember, children, that word incarnate or incarnation means that God became man, that he actually assumed human nature, that he took on our flesh. Let's pray together before reading. Our Father, we grope for words to describe these great and wondrous truths that we find in your word at any time, but especially at this time of the year as we focus upon the incarnation of our Lord in this special way. We ask that the same Holy Spirit who brought about the virginal conception of Jesus in Mary's womb will be at work now in the hearts of your people and in the hearts and lives of those who are strangers to grace, to bring those who do not know you to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that all of us may be amazed at the love that has been shown to us in the condescension of the second person of the Trinity, that he might assume our nature yet without sin. For our salvation, we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord and for his sake. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. This is the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Every week in this church, we confess together that we believe in the supernatural conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit and that he was born of the Virgin Mary. Many a congregation, sadly, does not believe this anymore. Many a minister standing in a pulpit this morning does not believe in the virgin birth of Christ any longer. 
perhaps even uses the language, perhaps the congregation even recites the Apostles or the Nicene Creed, and yet they so reinterpret the virgin birth as to evacuate it of meaning. In the early part of the 20th century, one of the most well-known preachers was the liberal Harry Emerson Fostick. He did not believe the gospel. He was a thoroughgoing modernist who did great damage to the church. One preacher said that he was the Jesse James of the ecclesiastical world. On this topic, Fosdick proclaimed that we can no longer believe in the virgin birth because the virgin birth is a biological impossibility. But is that not the whole point of our salvation? All that God has done is impossible for any but Him. Our salvation is totally impossible apart from His character, His power, His grace, His mercy. And then J. Gresham Machen, that great stalwart of the faith, wrote his great book on the virgin birth of Christ. Actually, one of the great liberals in Germany, Adolf von Harnack, wrote J. Gresham Machen's name on the board as the world's authority on the subject of the virgin birth of Christ, recognizing this conservative scholar's contribution. Machen wrote and showed that it was impossible to remove the virgin birth from Matthew and Luke and still hold to the integrity of the New Testament documents. And so we come to this text, as we could also in Luke's gospel, and we find the clear presentation of the virgin birth of Christ. So let's think about this great matter, and let's think through its significance together. First, we see the virgin birth announced. The virgin birth announced. Reading in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit is right up front in the text. As we read on in verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Verse 19 is reminding us of Jewish engagements that were legally binding And though no sexual relations occurred, Joseph was considered Mary's husband in a legal sense because of the betrothment. Infidelity would be considered adultery. When Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant, he assumes infidelity has taken place. But notice his kindness to Mary. He wishes to dissolve the union quietly. Now, as he is perplexed by this, confused, trying to understand what's going on, It's in the midst of this that we have the angel's announcement in verse 20 and in verse 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The angel of the Lord comes. The second time there is an explicit reference to the virginal conception of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in these short verses. He speaks to Joseph as son of David because God is about to send his son of David's line, the king. He speaks of Mary as your wife because he wants him to go on with the marriage. And when he says to Joseph, that he shall name the child, he shall call the child Jesus. For Joseph to call the child's name means that he is accepting this little baby 
as his adopted son. What condescension that the second person of the Trinity, God himself, would actually assume human nature. This second person of the Trinity in fellowship eternally with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, now condescending to have an adopted father. The important thing for us to note is this. Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, not naturally, but supernaturally. There was no human instrumentation. There was no human father. She conceived not naturally, but supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit. She is to bring forth the Savior. So these things are inseparably connected, the supernatural conception of Jesus and the supernatural salvation of his people from our sins. Your salvation, then, is dependent upon the virgin birth of Christ. How important is it? Let me repeat. Your salvation is dependent upon the virginal conception and sinless birth of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you see yourself to be a sinner? Have you ever acknowledged yourself to be a sinner in the presence of a holy God? Do do you see yourself to be so needy that it required a virgin birth to save you? Do you see yourself so needy that it required the supernatural intervention of God in order to save you from your sin? Let me tell you, I do. As the Holy Spirit has opened my heart to me, I know that I could not be saved apart from the supernatural intervention of God. No other way. No way. But let's move on. The second thing we see, the virgin birth of fulfillment. We've seen it announced. Now we see the virgin birth fulfilled. And in verses 22 and 23, we are told all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we find that it's a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. This 8th century B.C. prophet in chapter 7 of Isaiah prophesied the virginal conception of Jesus. In that passage, which we read a few moments ago, Jehovah offers King Ahaz a sign, and Ahaz refuses because he does not want God interfering with his military alliances. Isaiah then addresses the house of David with a sign that goes far, far, far beyond the days of Ahaz and of Isaiah the prophet. To be fulfilled in the distant future, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Savior to come, born of a virgin, will be Emmanuel, God with us, because he assumes human nature, though he himself is God. What is being proclaimed? That only God can save. And the method requires a virgin birth. It's actual fulfillment, as we read on in verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so Joseph trusted God, believed God, obeyed God, reverenced God's name. Joseph's life did not revolve around himself, but was focused upon the promise of God. And in the midst of all of this supernatural mystery, he trusts the word of the Lord from Isaiah 
and the word brought to him by the angel. Believe God's promise, people of God. Trust in his holy word. Now, Mary later had sexual relations with her husband. We know that. We come to verse 46 of chapter 12 that refers to Mary and the brothers of Jesus. And there are other references to his brothers in the Gospels. The idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary is something that has been added to Scripture by Roman Catholicism as they've added many things and many dangerous things, actually, to Holy Scripture, but it's not found in the Word of God. But at this point, Mary is a virgin. She has not known a man. And this holy child is conceived by the power of the Spirit. The third thing we see as we move on is the virgin-born child his name. The virgin-born child his name. And this is very crucial. We've seen it in verse 21. Look again. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the name is integral to the argument. It is essential to understanding who this, this child that will be born of the Virgin Mary is. It is a God-given name. God gives the name to Joseph so that Joseph may call his name Jesus. Joseph didn't come up with this on his own. God gave the name. Now, you will recall that pivotal events in Scripture are attached to names and the change of names. The Abrahamic covenant. We find Abram, that means exalted father. God changes his name to Abraham, the father of a multitude. Now we come to this very crucial, this very pivotal point in redemptive history as the virgin birth of Jesus is announced and God once again gives the child's name. In other words, we do not set up our own saviors, do we? We do not set up our own Jesus, do we? God gives him and God gives the name, does he not? Well, why the name Jesus? Because it is a name that means salvation. It's a contraction, this word Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. It's a contraction. You know what a contraction is. You have can and not, and you have cannot. You have uh, will and not, and you have won't. You have can't. Did I say that right, rightly? You have can't, you have won't. Well, you have is and not, and you have ain't. So <laughs> that's a contraction. So this word, Yeshua, Jesus, is a contraction. It means Jehovah is the only Savior. It means Savior. It means salvation. That's what he's getting across to us. That's what he's teaching through this name that the angel gives. That Jehovah alone is the Savior. We read in Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Isaiah 45, 21, there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. What is the point in the name that is given to this child that will be born of the Virgin Mary? The point is... The virgin-born Savior is Jehovah. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God Himself who assumes human nature. It is the name that saves 
You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It has the ring of divine sovereignty about it. He will save his people. He has a people, and Jesus will come and actually redeem and save those people given to him of the Father before all worlds. And from what does he save us, his people? He saves his people from their sins, from the guilt of sin, that awful guilt that you and I have even from birth as fallen in Adam. Before God, under his condemnation and wrath, Jesus comes and he removes all of that guilt so that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He removes the guilt of sin, but he also removes the power and dominion of sin in our lives. He saves from guilt, but he also saves from sin's dominion. As Paul said, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now let me be plain. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ does not only mean you come to him because you desire freedom from hell, though indeed we do. Coming to faith in Christ is not only the removal of guilt, though that is grand and great and marvelous. Coming to faith in Christ also means embracing Christ for deliverance from our depravity, from our corrupt hearts, not only from hell. And if one has not embraced that Christ, he has not embraced Christ. For one to say, I embrace a Christ that removes my guilt, but I could care nothing about removal of the corruption of my heart, that person has not truly trusted in Christ. When you come to Jesus, you trust a Jesus who removes guilt, but also who removes the sinful inclinations and disposition of the human heart. Have you done that? Have you trusted in him? How does Jesus save us from our sins? By taking all of the sins of all of his people on himself as he dies upon the cross, bearing the penalty due his people's sins, and by his Holy Spirit's applying that truth and reality to the hearts of those whom he calls. And this is the very point of the virgin birth of Christ. Which leads us to our fourth point. The virgin birth, its reasons. Or the virgin birth, its meaning. Now we're getting to the meaning of the virgin birth of Jesus. His name, as I said, was integral. His name is Jesus, for he shall save his people. His name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. With us, El. With us, God. That the Savior might be supernatural in his person. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. He is not a mere baby that we see in Bethlehem of Judea, but the eternal Son of God. And so his conception was supernatural through and through as befits the birth of the Son of God, assuming human nature. At no time was the supernatural suspended in order that the Savior might be born without sin. Because you could not have a Savior or a Redeemer who himself was a sinner. 
Jesus' birth was preserved from the defilement of original sin. You and I are corrupt from birth. We are fallen in Adam. We are sinners from birth. The scriptures are so plain about that. We call it original sin, the corruption of our whole nature. But Jesus' birth was preserved from the defilement of original sin. He could not be subject to defilement. He could not be participant in human depravity and also save you and me from guilt and the power, dominion of sin. So why the virgin birth? Why does Matthew stress it? Why does Luke teach it? Why did God reveal it to us in the Holy Scriptures? Because he is Jesus. Because he is Emmanuel. So that the incarnation could become a reality. So that God actually could assume human nature. That God could really condescend and become man. So that only he, only God could save us. And God himself does come to save us. It is truly the second person of the Trinity that becomes man. God condescends. God comes down to save us. Only God could save us. But only man could pay the penalty. Because man fell into sin, man must pay the penalty. So, Here's the inner logic of what the New Testament is teaching us. Jesus is God and man. In perfect union, He is God and man, that He might be our sinless substitute, that His sacrifice on the cross might have infinite value to pay the infinite debt that we sinners owed. That's... Why Christmas? That's what Christmas is all about. Listen, God came down, assumed human nature without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he was born of her yet without sin, so that he might be qualified to be your Redeemer from sin. Do you see? In it all, God is preparing a body to go to that cross, a human being to pay that penalty, but one who also is God, so that when He pays that debt that we owed, His debt Your debt, my debt, is paid in full because He is God in perfect union with humanity. And the infinitely valuable sacrifice of Jesus avails to remove our sins. Now I ask you, is that not wonderful? Is that not marvelous? Isn't that not Is he not the unspeakable gift? So I ask this next question. Our fifth point. Is the virgin birth 
essential? Is it essential? I shouldn't have to ask that, but I've told you, many a congregation no longer believes it. Many a minister no longer believes it, no longer preaches it, no longer believes it. But the answer to the question, is the virgin birth essential, is this. Yes. Unequivocally, yes. No equivocation, no hedging, no qualification. The answer is yes. It is in God's word. It is indispensable. It is part of the offense of the gospel. It is indispensable. And it is a part of that grand work of salvation accomplished by the God-man. It's inseparable from his deity, from his humanity. The virgin birth, the sinlessness, the atonement of Jesus, it's all a seamless garment. So if you remove one thread from that garment, it all begins to unravel. If you remove the virgin birth, you're going to next question the deity of Christ. You question the deity of Christ, you have no incarnation, no God-assuming human nature. No God-assuming human nature, you have no cross. No cross, no salvation. Yes, it's essential. Absolutely essential. Does anybody else believe this? Well, sure. Let me give you an example of somebody that I can quote today, not the 18th century or today. Here's our friend Al Mohler. You know Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Should be a friend of ours. He's a good Calvinist. Here's what Dr. Mohler has to say about this. Dr. Mohler blogs. I don't blog, but here it is. Can a true Christian deny the virgin birth? The answer to that question must be a decisive no. Those who deny the virgin birth reject the authority of Scripture, deny the supernatural birth of the Savior, undermine the the very foundations of the gospel, and have no way of explaining the deity of Christ. Anyone who claims that the virgin birth can be discarded even as the deity of Christ is affirmed is either intellectually dishonest or theologically incompetent. Several years ago, Cecil Sherman, then a Southern Baptist, but later the first coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stated, a teacher who might also be led by the Scripture not to believe in the virgin birth should not be fired. I don't know if you heard that. Let me read it to you again. This Baptist leader says, a teacher who might also be led by Scripture not to believe in the virgin birth should not be fired. Consider the logic of that statement, says Dr. Moeller. A Christian can be led by the Bible to deny what the Bible teaches. This kind of logic is what has allowed those who deny the virgin birth to sit comfortably in liberal theological seminaries and preach their reductionistic Christ from major pulpits. Christians must face the fact that a denial of the virgin birth is a denial of Jesus as the Christ. The Savior who died for our sins was none other than the baby who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the virgin. The virgin birth does not stand alone as a biblical doctrine. It is an irreducible part of the biblical revelation about the person and work of Christ. With it, the gospel stands or falls. He's absolutely right. So I press upon every believer in Jesus Christ here. Your duty, not just my duty, not just your elder's duty, not just your deacon's duty, your duty Every believer here, 
I press upon you your duty to insist on doctrinal purity, and especially where the person of Christ is concerned. I press upon you your obligation. And as it relates to the virgin birth of Christ, this is a sure test of what a man believes about Jesus. Ministers in the Presbyterian Church, elders and deacons also, subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. We hold up that confession and we say we believe every doctrine in this confession as our own. And you know, if you don't believe it, nobody forces you to become a Presbyterian minister. You can go elsewhere. But let me tell you what's happened in many a time in history. I'll give you an example. In 1923, there was the infamous Auburn Affirmation signed by, as I recall, about 1,900 ministers in the Northern Presbyterian Church that set forth the virgin birth, death on the cross, as mere theories. One can believe otherwise if one wished. Every signer of that affirmation had subscribed to the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. When my teacher, Edmund P. Clowney, was taking courses at Yale, one of the professors told the guys there, you know, the Presbyterian Church is a great church in which to serve. The only problem is you have to lie to get in. Subscribe to that confession. Of course, they took care of that. They got rid of the confession. Do you see what I'm driving at? If the people in the pew were committed to these things, that would never happen. Because ministers in pulpits not preaching the truth or preaching error would not be tolerated. That's your obligation, as well as mine, and the presbyteries, and your elders. Subscription to the confession of faith is a matter of plain honesty. I believe it. If I didn't believe it, I would go elsewhere. I believe it. Dr. James M. Baird, I told you I heard one sermon on the virgin birth. One Sunday, as I was studying the Reformed faith, I popped in and heard Dr. Baird preach. Later, it becomes my home church. First time I'd ever heard it, Dr. James M. Baird preaching the virgin birth of Christ. Dr. Baird said this, I was at a presbytery, and there was a fellow that came for ordination, and we examined him on the floor, and he was asked a simple question, do you believe in the virgin birth of Christ? And it took one hour to verbally chase him down before finally he admitted, I don't. The presbytery voted to ordain him. Dr. Baird stood up in the presbytery and said, this is no longer the church of my fathers. Do you see my point? That's your obligation to hold to the truth and to be faithful to the truth. And so I call upon you to be steady, to be decisive, and even if the whole world calls us bigots, do not compromise the Savior. Biological impossibility, says Mr. Fostick, well, now he knows better. 
God does for man the impossible because he's done it for me. Oh, my brother, my sister in Christ, only a supernatural Christ can bring us home. Only a virgin-born Savior, God and man, two distinct natures, one person, can be for us the bridge of grace. Is the virgin birth necessary? Yes, it is necessary. But my unbelieving friend, I want to say to you, if you do not know Christ and you are here today, this virgin-born Savior is necessary for you, essential for you. Insofar as in me lies, I cannot let you think that all is well with your soul when it is not. You need the Savior. Let me tell you a story. A young man once said to D.L. Moody, Mr. Moody, I cannot become a Christian because I do not believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Mr. Moody responded, Young man, it is not the virgin birth of Christ that is troubling you. It is your sin. What is it? The young man left angrily. That night he came back. Mr. Moody said, You're right. My difficulty is not with the virgin birth, but with myself, with my own heart. He confessed his sin to the Lord. He trusted in Christ as his Savior. That moment became a believer in Jesus. Mr. Moody then said, after the young man was converted, Now do you want to discuss the virgin birth? He said, oh no, I have no objection to the virgin birth. (laughs) My friend who does not believe in Christ, your problem is not that you cannot intellectually perceive that God gives an infallible book. Your problem is not that you cannot intellectually perceive of a virgin birth or the atonement on the cross or Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Your problem is the problem that all of us have. It is the problem of your sin. And sin is the atmosphere in which you will think until you come to know Christ by the Holy Spirit's work in your life. But if that Holy Spirit blessedly causes you to see that you have an impure birth, that you were conceived in iniquity, that in sin our mothers, our mothers did conceive us and give birth to us, that it goes all the way back to the fall of man in Adam, that we are all sinners, if the Holy Spirit causes you to see your impure birth, then you will immediately see your need of the Savior's absolutely pure birth. And I want to say to you, my unbelieving friend, that I need precisely the same thing. And so does everyone in this room. And so does everyone in the world. We need a sinless Savior who can be the Savior to remove our guilt and the dominion of sin. Isn't that right, people of God? Don't you need the pure birth? Could you be saved without the pure birth? Could you be saved by a Savior who himself was sinful just as you are? No Savior there. And so we sing at Christmas... Christ by highest heaven adored, 
Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail, incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.